Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome John Cleland to the show. John Cleland is co-founder and CEO of RenewWest, an environmental asset developer that addresses climate change through the development of natural working land emission reduction projects. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks. John, I'd like to kick off before we dig into Renew West with your background as a trader. What are some of the lessons you learned back then that help you today? I think learning how to dump a bad trade um, has been very effective. <laughs> you know. I think uh, that was a definitely one of those um, skills that were hard earned. Um, you know, falling in love with a trade is is really what's going to ruin your day, your week, or your month. And it's it's helped in terms of obviously getting rid of <clears throat> projects that we're working on um, much more quickly and and trying to understand maybe what employees uh, you know aren't working or what contractors or uh, partnerships that you have aren't working and, you know, really trying to get the most out of, out of those things first. But, uh, I, th- I think learning how to dump a bad trade, um, as a trader probably has been, it's the most important thing. It's like, uh, you know, I think, or a poker analogy you could make obviously is learning how to make a good fold, you know, so, and, and, and how much time and, and money that saves you over time. So it's interesting you mentioned poker. You know, I love the book by Annie Duke, I believe, Thinking in Bets. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about dumping a bad trader for a moment here. You know, we all felt like geniuses in 2020, 2021, um, and many of us, self-included, held on too long to certain trades. You know, you often hear that there's a logical side and an emotional side, but then you also hear the emotional side supports the logical side. What's some of the thinking process that you perhaps went through to help you overcome some of those challenges of the logic and the emotions? Yeah, sure. I, I think we're trying to implement, you know, OKRs and, and, and KPIs here. Um, and, I, and I've and i always very much been a, a person on the emotional side. You know, I, I, I really like to create strong bonds and strong relationships with people. And, and so it becomes more and more difficult, obviously, to, to make those decisions when you become emotionally attached to certain things. So I, I do believe you have to start looking at uh, value that's that's being created, and you have to start looking at metrics, you know, in, in these situations, um, if you can, and um, ultimately determine is, you know, am I feeling good about this? Like, like at the end of the day, like, is this relationship or is this project like, is this? Do I get excited when I think about it or talk about it, or is it something that I feel like is just dragging on? Um, and I, I think that's. And then you ultimately can go to a gut decision on those. And, and if you feel like those bets, I guess, are, are taking away from your 
I don't know if you want to call it happiness or taking away from your day, they're not giving you positive energy, then I think you have to start figuring out how to let those go. So if I'm not mistaken, OKRs are objective key results. Is that correct? Yeah. So let's fast forward to the current state or current time. Um, can you give us an overview of Renew West and your role at the organization? Sure. Uh, Renew West is has evolved in, into an environmental asset manager. I wouldn't say it's too dissimilar from actually what Nexus has done in the past. Um, we've, you know, maybe have more of a focus on nature-based solutions, um, you know, and, and um, but what we do is work directly with uh, many different types of landowners. Uh, could be governments, could be private landowners, um, it could be indigenous groups um, and or, or communities. And we want to help them identify um, the values, uh, the intrinsic values that exist there that and, and occur in nature, I guess, by restoring those properties uh, back to health um, and, you know, allowing the community to to co-benefit alongside any investors that we work with uh, into those projects, whether it's through, you know, economic streams or ability to, you know, I guess, get timber out of it or, or fishing or whatever it is that, that, that they can pull from those from those properties or from those those areas. So uh, effectively, we are an environmental asset manager that works with different landowners to achieve uh, incredible results, you know, both financially and uh, biodiversity related. So. so can you walk us through a project so we can kind of get our arms around it? Sure. Um, I can actually walk you through um, the first project that we completed was with uh, a timber company in California. Well, they're based actually in Oregon. Uh, their name is Collins Pine Company, and they had an area that was burned from a fire in 2012. Uh, we met with them in 2018, I believe, and, and talked to them about the opportunity for a reforestation carbon project. Um, and, and they agreed to work with us um, if we were able to to identify capital to reforest the area. So, you know, we had initial kind of legal agreements that that assuming we found capital, they would work with us, and we did. And so we implemented a carbon project. Um, and we we had we raised over three point five million ish dollars, um, and then scheduled a reforestation of the property, which com- was completed almost a year ago today. Um, in uh, Modoc County, California. Um, we're now working um, to get that project verified as a carbon offset project. And, you know, we'll subsequently begin to work with different types of investors or buyers uh, for a future stream of carbon credits. Um, we did not manage the actual reforestation. They're a timber company. And so that's kind of what they do. Uh, but in another instance where maybe the landowner doesn't have that expertise, we would coordinate with subcontractors uh, or different groups to to execute these different um, portions of the, of the job. So I believe you said it burned down in 2012 mm-hmm. and you started discussing the project in 2018. Is that correct? Yeah, it was, it was the Berry Point fire uh, in 2012. Um, I want to say 90 plus thousand acres burned down and a section they owned was also burned. And it ended up um, just laying fallow for a number of years. Um, and they did not 
looked to you know spend money on the reforestation of it and and we found because of the carbon market's existence and the ability to leverage that market um we could we could perform the reforestation so is it common practice after a fire for land like that to sit fallow i don't think so i think it depends on a number of things you know where the company's position may be financially if they if they want to you know put the risk on that project or um what the growth rates of that area may be i think finding that opportunity it almost felt like a needle on a stack of needles you know there's a lot of you you know you have to meet specific additionality and permanence uh requirements to execute a carbon project and i think in a number of areas um that do have have that historically have had burns they still have um very good growth rates and so i believe that that property you know it's it's towards the the latter end of of growth rates for a timber opportunity and and so i think you would ana- analyze the risk reward you know scenario for reforesting it again um you know where other growth rates exist on the western slope of california or in you know northern northwestern uh washington or oregon i mean these areas well washington and oregon actually have state laws that you that you have to reforest after a salvage and california doesn't so um you know there's so many areas that need to be reforested after burns if you salvage them or still have good enough growth rates where you would invest capital to do a reforestation project again um so i think the property that we found still had good enough growth rates to perform a carbon project on and a, a achieve a, a return profile over time but um also kind of laid in that kind of gray area of you could see where someone may not want to risk uh, performing a, a reforestation project again if that makes sense now you mentioned additionality i think i'm familiar with it but could you educate us on that concept sure additionality basically is a concept that says if with without the finance associated with a carbon project this project would not be viable um and and there's no other kind of impending you know law or or rule or requirement that that forces that behavior so you know in a number of carbon projects over the last few years um have had their additionality questioned um you know i think the nature conservancy came under fire for one and there's there's a few others out there that um you know john oliver did a show on it saying that certain areas were already planning to be conserved or were never planning to be cut down so how do you issue credits for a project that was not additional you know so is i'm probably making this a little murkier than it needs to be but but basically without the the project finance you know these tons of co2 would not be sequestered or these emissions of co2 you know would not be removed and so you have to correlate the project finance directly to the outcomes of the project to achieve additionality i think i understand now you mentioned this particular project can you walk us through the phases of a project i think you said 2018 this started and you started reforesting last year what are the different phases and some of the challenges along the way it's a great question um certainly the f- initial phases would be discovery and and feasibility um you know you have to spend a lot of time with landowners and educating them on what would be involved in a carbon project um you know they really got to understand if you were to implement something 
what the requirements of the landowner would be. It's and and an important part would be permanence, meaning, you know, if you do issue credits, there's a lot of protocols that say you need to implement an MRV policy, which is monitoring, reporting, and verification over an incredibly long period of time. Um, the compliance market in California, which is where we listed this project, requires 100 years of MRV after credit issuance. So if you did 25 years of crediting, meaning you issued credits from the first 25 years of growth in this specific type of project, you need to have 100 years of MRV post that last issuance. So you're looking at a 125-year project, um, which, which essentially means you have to maintain that level of carbon stocking on that forest um, for the credits that you issued. So <clears throat> you have to educate. That's one big step is educating the landowner on what that sounds. I mean, doing that farm. sounds huge. It's generational. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's a, it's a big deal for a lot of, of landowners, which is what makes reforestation so difficult. One component of what makes that type of project very difficult. So you're looking at absolutely a generational where they may not be able to convert property or sell property, but that has this type of encumbrance on it. Um, so it's a big decision. And um, if it's something that you can get an investor to do and, and provide them capital if they need it, then, you know, it's certainly understandable. And that's why we're, you know, really trying to push for high value credits, um, you know, ultimately carbon credits that generate enough income where a project like this would be attractive. So, um, so you have to go through a big education process and then you have to do a whole feasibility assessment, assuming that they wouldn't move forward. And that feasibility assessment includes uh, carbon modeling. Um, through you know a number of different um, methods, um, there's different protocols that exist that might change the, the amount of carbon credits that you use, or might make some things easier on landowners. So we would run feasibility assessments through a number of different protocols that exist, and um, if we can come to a, a you know basically a, a financial outcome that makes sense for everyone, um, then we would take that next step and look to find financing. So. And they're all difficult parts. I mean, the feasibility assessments um, have become easier. You know, assuming a landowner wants to participate, you know, you can run those feasibility assessments and get to kind of a go-no-go -no -go scenario. Um, it's becoming more trickier now. We're spending a lot of time actually, um, the, the direction we're, we're moving towards um, is actually working on international projects. Uh, we're in Mexico, we're in South America, we're in the South Pacific, um, and those come with a whole host of different uh, hurdles, which are, you know, government policy um, from all different levels, from high up as, as federal down to um, local community um, governance. So, um, and there's new UN um, issues going on uh, specific to Article 6. So you, you're kind of trading, you know, where you understand everything and how it works in the U.S., um, there's, you're trading those uh, issues um, to a whole, for a whole other set of them to, to manage. So, um, but the steps are typically, you know, working with landowners, educating, doing feasibility assessments, and then getting to an investable state for that project. And assuming you can do that, um, you know, it's still, there's still another whole other set of, of hurdles that you have to do, which is implement the project and then go to credit issuance, um, after implementation. And, and that credit issuance, um, can take a number of, um, steps uh, in order to, to complete. So all projects require third-party verifiers. 
um, to go out and, and to verify that the credit issuance that you expect to happen um, falls you know, within their results. Um, but uh, assuming you get everyone on board, the, the verifying body, uh, the registry with where, where you've listed the project, um, you, know, hope, you hope for the best possible results. So going back to this generational question for a moment, you mentioned projects in the U.S. and then projects in other parts of the world. How or are the conversations with the landowners different? Do they have a different mindset, you know, in parts of, like you mentioned, Mexico, other areas versus the U.S.? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in parts of the U.S., there's, there's a high um, kind of stress on, on financial returns. Um, you're dealing with different types of landowners here. Um, you also work with private landowners in other areas like Mexico that also want financial returns, but there's, I believe a, a bigger, um, kind of stress point on, on community benefits, um, in some of the other countries that we're working in. Um, you want to absolutely include all of those benefits. There's actually, you know, been recent, uh, push about, um, and discussions on how some of these local communities have feel like they're being treated more like, um, a beneficiary than a partner. And there's, there's really been a, a, a strong push to include them as partners in these projects. Um, if, you, if you talk, except in areas in the U.S. where you include, um, you know, tribal properties um, and, and indigenous areas, um, they very much, you know, all of these groups want to be included in the process. They want to create jobs for their local communities. They don't want an outside group to come in and do all the implementation. Um, they certainly are open to the outside capital, but it's to create jobs and economic benefits for within their communities, which, which uh, I believe is incredibly important. Also in reforestation areas in the U.S., you're looking at um, mostly single species or, you know, maybe a few different types of species um, because you're looking at timber plantations and certain areas would benefit much better from a carbon perspective and a biodiversity perspective if you were to implement a mixed native uh, species, you know, on a afforestation or reforestation and restoration project. So that's also a difference in, in some of these types of projects. So I'm guessing that it's not just you having these conversations with landowners. Can you perhaps um, shed some light on your team and who you've brought on board to have these other conversations? Absolutely. Um, I have been lucky enough to be joined by, um, my COO and, and CIO, uh, my COO is Adrian Reef, um, who's spent um, a really great career as an entrepreneur and, and developed a food company that, that he then exited from a few years ago. Um, and Brent McMinn, who's my CIO, uh, these two have been absolutely pivotal in, in uh, us uh, pushing the company from where it was to, to raising additional capital, identifying different types of projects internationally, and um, helping make them look attractive from an investing point of view. Um, and we've also recently added um, a handful of uh, highly technical individuals, a few with PhDs, um, Jason Clark, our forester, Lucy Doblin, who's our expert down in Peru, uh, Cecilia Simon, who is um, an expert within um, all of the registries and, and the technical aspects of projects and how we need to get them moving forward. Um, so it's it's really been phenomenal growth for us and just all around high integrity team 
and um, everyone really trying to push to do the best possible projects. So how do you, how have you managed to have these individuals buy into the vision of the company? Um, I think, you know, for some it's, it's the opportunity that's taking place. I, I think it's quite obvious to everyone um, that there is so much growth going on here in the climate space and um, it allows them to um, be a part of it. It allows them, I think there's so much in, um, internal kind of um, desire to, to work on nature-based projects for these individuals. There's an incredible amount of energy on, on being able to see the benefits of a restoration project, you know, and look at the work that you've created and done. Uh, it, and it allows people to be a part of that. Um, I, I think um, there's, there's so much capital that's being put into the climate space right now and the restoration uh, project space. Um, so I think the buy-in from a fundamental point of view is fairly simple. I think from the team perspective, um, everyone here is showing up ready to work every single day and, and bring energy to the situation. So I, I also believe that, you know, the leadership that Adrian, Brent, and myself are providing, I mean, there's such so many amazing examples being set every single day of, of what people are doing here. So I, I think people are excited to join this team because of what they're seeing happening because of, of how we present ourselves. Uh, so I think it's a little bit of both, you know, being able to be part of this industry is exciting for people. It allows them, um, you know, I think it allows them to get away from some of the mundane jobs that they've had in, in, you know, uh, previous years. Um, you know, Jenny Hollander, who we've, who we recently added, um, she unfortunately was able, wasn't able to get, um, her reforestation project off the ground, but I've been friends with her for almost two years now and have been highly supportive of what she's been doing. And, um, she recently came on board and, and put all of her energy and totally understands what we're doing. And, and so I think we're really trying to find also individuals that we know would fit well here. So it's just been an awesome culture that we're, that we're creating here. So I think that's a huge attraction to it. So speaking of previous jobs, you know, we kind of touched on your background a little bit. How did you land at Renew West? Sure. Um, I spent, well, I guess I, got very interested in the carbon markets when I ran my own brokerage um, out of Chicago in, in the, the early 2000s. I was probably around 2007, eight timeframe. And um, I saw the Chicago Climate Exchange um, being developed. Um, ultimately that fizzled mostly from the financial crisis. Um, you know, so I always had a very uh, strong desire to be part of kind of what was being created there. And it always kind of kept my finger on the pulse of what that market was doing. Um, I ended up moving to Denver from Chicago in 2015, uh, looking to get into what I didn't know at the time was called impact investing. I, I really wanted to apply my skill set uh, of, of raising capital and building relationships, um, you know, from a financial perspective uh, towards an environmental type of company. Uh, and that's where, um, I met my uh, co-founder, Mike Smith, um, who is working to get Renew West off the ground, um, doing Western-based reforestation. Um, you know, we, we then pushed um, for a number of years to, to work on Western landscape reforestation in the carbon market. And um, 
it's been very, very difficult to do these types of projects. So um, ultimately kind of evolving into looking at other nature-based projects that can um, produce crediting and, and return profiles um, much closer to the near term. So that's kind of how we ended up here. So one of the questions I like to ask is why? What draws you to environmental or nature-based projects? I think that there's a number of, of reasons. Uh, you know, one of them is, is certainly I love, I love being outside. I love being a part of, of nature wherever it is and, and working to restore that. I think that's just a huge natural draw. It'll, it's, you, you take a lot of pride in what it is that you're doing um, and helping different landowners uh, achieve, you know, really amazing results. I think that's a big part. Um, I think there's also um, an opportunity here uh, to work with incredible people, which is something else I've always wanted to do. I, I think historically for me, I never found the culture of, finance to be that fun, that redeeming, you know, it, it came to a point for me where I was just hating going to, to work every single day with, you know, people that didn't share the same, um, I think viewpoints that I did in, in, uh, in many ways. And, and for me being part of this, it, it allows me to be, a, you know, part of a culture that totally gets what we're doing. Um, and so that's, what's important for me. I think trying to do something that's, um, going to have results that last for many years and it's pure and is not just a transaction. Um, but you know, you're working with all different types of people to create results that, uh, hopefully you can look back and, and see many years from now. And so I think that's what, what's a huge motivator for me and what's a huge draw for me here. So you've been on this journey a little over five years. What are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself? I think what's been, valuable for me is, is sticking with this. I, I think being stubborn and, and sticking with this, um, is, is uh, something I've learned about myself is, is, uh, the resilience that I've been able to show, um, overcoming a number of different challenges and continuing to push forward with this. Um, I think other lessons I've learned have been, um, honestly, one of the lessons I've, I've learned was how competitive people still are. You know, you sometimes think you're leaving a, a highly competitive space uh, in the financial world, uh, in commodities, uh, you know, in, at the Chicago Board of Trade, or, and, you, and you come here thinking that nonprofits or NGOs uh, weren't going to, they're going to be so much different. They're not. They're almost even more so. There's, there's NGOs that have executive directors that have unbelievable egos that are incredibly difficult to work with unless you do it their way. And I think, the, another lesson I've learned is just if you outwork the people and there's, there's nothing you can't do, there's nothing you can't achieve. And so what you've got, what you've really got to do is just show up every single day and be determined to do it, to do what it is that you want to do. I, I think in the beginning when we were doing this, we got a whole handful of night pats on the back, like, well, it sounds like you guys are going to do good work, good luck with, with no real confidence. And until you actually execute on something and show people that you can do something, you know, that's when uh, ears start to perk up and um, people start to have you want to have you on their podcast. Um, and so I think showing up every single day, outworking your competition um, and just continuing to be nice to people, um, that's going to open doors. I appreciate that. Now let's jump into the future. Imagine 10 years from now. So it's 
2033 and pick a favorite publication, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, Forbes, is going to write a headline or perhaps even a small or short paragraph about Renew West. What would you like that headline or paragraph to read? Um, it's a good question. Uh, Renew West projects have, uh, you know, sequestered hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 and, um, you know, invested billions of dollars into nature-based uh, projects. I don't know. I mean, um, that's something I have never even thought about before. Well, it sounds like a new KPI in the making. <laughs> we, we just came from a KPI meeting, actually. I, I read before <laughs> this. And so we were kind of going over those, um, you know, and, and we understand that they're the before part, you know, and, and something that you hope to aspire to. And, and then, but, uh, you know, hopefully we can, we can uh, do some good work. I think uh, the headline would have to, I don't know, be something around that the, the carbon market is, um, you know, continually growing and, and has strengthened through a number of different ways. And, and uh, the projects that we've implemented over the last few years are, are still viable, you know, and generating millions of credits. So something along those lines, I guess, uh, that all the time that we've spent here was worth it. You know, John, one of the ahas I had from this conversation is, the timelines in which you're operating is generational timelines, 100 years, 125 years. And I would love to be a fly on the wall when you first have these conversations with landowners regarding, I think you called it, you know, the monitoring, recording and verification that's going to take place over, you know, 100 years is depending on how you count it, sometimes four generations, three generations. But um, just the looks on their faces or the conversations, I, I, I can't even imagine what they look like. Yeah, but I think it's it's initial sticker shock to some degree, right? It's something that they're not used to doing, but you really have to put it into context. You know, there's areas that have been pumping oil uh, for 100 years. There's areas that have been creating all different types of commodities for decades, you know, if not centuries. And um, you just have to look at it in that context to understand and you know who gets it the best obviously are are some of the um the landowners in in these underdeveloped countries mm -hmm. you know these you know we're looking at stuff in papua new guinea um and talking to those areas and and their their culture has been around for tens of thousands of years and so you know two three generations is a blip to them right um you know but you do find those issues with um some of the the real sticker shock for a lot of people is the investors and um, some of the, you know, North American based landowners or European based landowners that, that, that are understand, um, you know, quick transactions. But mm -hmm. if you can put it into the context, you know, of businesses that are around for decades, um, you know, and understand what, what generating value is over time, it, it, it becomes a, a much uh, softer land and, and gravity, you know, does pull through for you. And everyone gets their feet back on the ground. And, um, you know, so I think if a lot of the landowners actually here in the U.S. too are also excited about being able to conserve properties, you know, so you have a whole different group like that, that that actually are, are hopeful to preserve areas, whether it's in Texas or Louisiana or, you know, some of the areas in the southeast. I think they're excited about that. So um some people it lands really well with, some people not. But um, once you start to 
you know, educate them on the process and, and what you're doing, I, I think people start to come around to it. So, Well, and fortunately, you have the skill of dumping a trade, right? <laughs> Lucky for me. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned persistence, resilience, outworking earlier. But if you could share some specific advice, words of wisdom or recommendations with the audience, what would it be? Find great partners. You know, there's there's so much of of this that would be impossible to do by yourself. Um, I, I think align yourself with great partners. Align yourself with people that push you, that question you, um, but also support you. I, I can't. It's it's really just been the crux of, of everything that we're doing. Um, you've got to find great people to work with. Um, so if if uh, I, I, I think that's the lesson I've learned, to be honest. Um, believe in yourself, obviously, and believe in what you want to do, but be open to criticism. Be open to um, different ideas uh, and just find people that are all trying to row the boat together. And, um, you know, don't make this about yourself. Make this about what the success of the company looks like. That That's really what I've learned. Well, John, I think finding great partners is a great place to end. I look forward to your continued success and catching up with you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.